Hello, everybody. Welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you this evening? I'm very, very well. I, I had a good day. I had a productive you- day. I was on the rowing machine. I made some art. I'm working on the textbook, and I've uh, just about finished uh, a nonfiction collection that I'm about to get off to the world. So, very cool. Good. Very awesome. Very awesome. Well, last night I was hanging out with some friends. They have a gym in their garage, and they have this heavy bag, and they were showing me how to throw a proper cross. I'm getting into to boxing now, and. I was practicing. I was I was doing jab jab cross jab jab cross, uh, not realizing that I should have probably wrapped my hands or put boxing gloves on. Uh oh. And yeah, after about thirty minutes of that, I looked down at my right hand, and there are these two just goiter-looking protrusions coming out of my right hand. And I thought, oh, well, that's probably not good. But I put some ice on it. And, <laughs> We're we're back to normal now. So you know the the quest for uh, you know these sort of manly sports is uh, the the road to doing so is paved with uh, injury and just making stupid mistakes. But it was a lot of fun. I'm definitely gonna keep up with it because I I want to be able to do something with my strength now that I have it. Um, so yeah, so that's that's where I'm at. It's a very very cold evening. We are going to be getting. Freezing rain, possibly some snow over the next few days. So wow. Very unusual for for late October. Trick but or treat, that, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're going to need some ice skates to to go trick or treating. But um, Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Okay. Well, I thought we'd pick up on um, the last episode, which was on the complex subject of empathy. We got a lot of feedback on that. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, Quite a few people uh, kicked in comments from a a wide range of perspectives. So we felt that we really needed to to tease out some issues, to respond to some points, and to refine a few of the perspectives put forward. So I thought we would just start with a little bit of a recap, which for people who haven't caught up with the last episode, this will bring things into a bit of, of focus. And for people who did, I think it will refine the focus and maybe change some, some views about the points put forward. So point number one, we, we started talking about a book by an author named Paul Bloom called Against Empathy. Uh, This is not his first book. We encourage you to look at some of his other titles. Um, But as the title suggests, uh, it it has been controversial. Everyone kind of naturally thinks that empathy is, uh, you know, kind of uh, the mandatory thing, which in itself is a real problem. And David and I are, are very concerned about prosecuting any idea that gets so taken for granted. Um it becomes kind of an ossifying force in our thinking and in our our practical lived lives. Um, So his key point, uh, this is my read of it, and and, uh, I think David did cover this pretty well, but just to remind folks and for people who didn't connect, uh, empathy at the personal individual level is one thing. 
connection, identification, commiseration with people such as family and friends. We all get that. That's completely natural. That's human. Um, no one's really questioning that aspect of our lives. There are some problems with that. We can, we can be too empathetic. We can get swamped emotionally and psychologically. Uh, this happens. Um, we know it happens. My psychotherapist friend has a lot of, of patients who have exactly this problem. And in uh, the COVID-19 era, this has been a real sort of issue. But on the individual level, empathy is one thing. But when we jump levels, and this is something that Dave and I are going to talk about throughout the series indefinitely, because level crossing, level jumping is where so many disagreements and confusions result. When we move to the level of the social, institutional, public policy level, government, corporations, large entities, that's when the empathy thing isn't so straightforward. I mean, think about it. If Do you want the Social Security office really acting empathetically? Well, your first answer might be yes, relative to you, but that means they may not be, you know, treating other people the same way. I mean, we're really after equality, equal treatment. You know, this is the real concern. So issues of bias and, and privileging certain needs over others, we're seeing that. I mean, this is a real problem. There is a question about uh, the allocation of resources to meet needs on a big social giant scale. And there's the question of, of are there enough resources to go around? So Bloom makes the point, and I think that we express some real uh, empathy with his point that nice. uh, nicely done. <laughs> thank you. Uh, that there is a, a real difference in the levels that maybe when we get to a bigger giant cultural level, we want objectivity and fairness and that may be counter to empathy. Okay. Point number two, we talked about, and this was more David's and my point of view, is that empathy is often, sadly, not authentic. It's not what it appears or claims to be. We all know that. There is an issue of being seen to do good, virtue as you know a badge of social merit. And there's also the issue of, of unacknowledged vested interest behind good deeds or good words. You know, things aren't always Correct. what they appear. The third point, um, well, just on that, you know, just empathy not being what it appears to be. Um, I was thinking of a, there's a really lovely book by John Fowles, who's the author of, amongst other novels, The Magus. Um, but he wrote a short philosophical sort of book. It's kind of a collection of aphorisms grouped thematically. Um, it's called the Aristos or the Aristos. And he says, nobody wants to be a nobody. All our acts are partly devised to fill or mask the emptiness we feel at the core. That's, um, that's something we're thinking about. The I feel that at the core. 
I feel that quote in my core. Uh, I think we all do. I mean, I think that's uh, that's an example. I mean, I really recommend uh, this book. It's uh, it's it's openly didactic, and he says in his introduction that that is his uh, intent. He wants to challenge us to to think and to really review our own positions on some of these major issues. It's a lovely book, still very much in print. Um, but then the third point, I think, is is something that that everyone can relate to, and it's the question of results versus uh, intention. You know, the old proverb, the road to hell is paved, dot, dot, dot. Um, you know, it's the matter of, of deeds versus words, thought versus action. And Fowles, again, has an interesting point about this, which I think is, is very... Uh, it's, it's expressed with very fair-mindedness. Failure to enact good can stem from conflict of intention. So he gives, he's given credit here. High intelligence leads to multiplicity of interest and a sharpened capacity to foresee the consequences of any action. Will is often lost in a labyrinth of hypothesis. I, I think that's very easy for, for me to relate to. I think that that, mm-hmm. that is one of the problems. And notice how he really pinpoints how this might affect the most intelligent, most capable, best-intentioned people. And then we have uh, a, a kind of famous Irish poet, uh, saying it even more simply. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That's not quite so charitable and empathetic to human nature, but I think it's (laughs) kind of on point. That's from a poem that I think every, well, many people will be familiar with called The Second Coming. Um, it's, It's in the news a lot. It's kind of increasingly relevant with each passing day. So those are mm-hmm. that's kind of the background for for where we got to last episode, and then that got me thinking of um, one of my favorite philosophers in the realm of ethics, uh, Spinoza. I, I think Spinoza. He, I think you know the old lens polisher really had a lot to say about ethics, and there are two lines that I picked out, David, that I thought. Um, there, there's a, a very interesting dynamic between them and a contrast between them. And I wanted to, uh, to hit you up with this kind of out of the blue and get your response to, to really launch us into uh, this current episode. Okay, you okay, ready? Let me, let, me, let, me, let me put my response hat on. Okay, okay. cool. Are you ready? I'm ready. I, I'm, I am locked and loaded. Okay, now bear in mind there are two... And these are not sequential, but I've I've picked them out because I think they represent uh, a very very interesting oscillating tension, and also a holistic uh, overall position that I want you to have to confront. So here you go. Blessed are the weak who think that they are good. Because they have no claws. Damn. The second one is, do not weep. Do not wax indignant. 
understand. Mm. What do you mm. think of that? Over to you, sir. All right. Well, those are two very, very good quotes, and they're they're doing uh, different but slightly similar things. So, blessed are the weak, for they do not have claws. Am I getting that correct? Yes. Well, who thinks they are good? Because who they think do. they are good? That's very important to make sure that we have that part in. Um, that brings me to the idea uh, regarding empathy of it being something that can turn your brain off. The idea of being able to be handed a, a set of edicts that you follow in order that you might be good. Um, the claws come in when you start to question all of those predetermined edicts and start to think on your own. This happens all the time with people who are stuck in a uh, Christian upbringing, much like I was. As soon as you get yeah, as soon as you get out of the church, which happened for me at a very young age, uh, but really sort of fully formed once I left the house uh, on my 18th birthday, there's a story behind that that I'll save for a later date. But once you leave the church, once you leave this temple of rules and regulation, you suddenly find that you have claws, that you are not necessarily a virtuous person, that you have to start making decisions for yourself. And I think that what a lot of people end up doing, unfortunately, is running to the nearest shelter that they can find as though they've been cast out into a violent storm. And they have to find some place where they can put their feet, where they can you know, dry their clothes, warm their hands, where everything can make sense again. Because now you're in the chaos of the real world. Many people won't admit to going through this kind of thing. They'll say things to the effect of, well, I just followed my natural, moralistic, human drive. I didn't need the church to do that. But it's not quite that simple because you start to find people who fall more and more into different ways of thinking, more religious, strict ways of living. Um, and in doing that, they're going back to somebody else sort of having claws for them. Now, the people who don't do that, for the people who decide to move away even from the surrogate religion, they start to develop their own claws. When you have claws, when you have the capability of hurting, of maiming, now all of a sudden you have to start developing your own system for what you think is right or wrong. And as you mentioned in the recap, the problem with empathy largely stems from the fact that it is a top-down managerial list of things that you're supposed to do with your newfound clause, a place that you're supposed to redirect that, that energy. And when I said that that kind of thing was anti-magic, the problem with that is that in magic, you have to understand that you are a person with clause, with a will, with something that you want things that you want to protect, things that you have to focus on very carefully. You can't necessarily be caught up in what a system of rules and ethics tells you to do, right? So that's, in my opinion, the first quote. And if you wouldn't mind, can you remind me of the second one? I have it vaguely in my head. Okay. I just want to follow up a couple of things while, Please do. while the word clause has just come out of your mouth. Um, mm -hmm. I, I want to be clear that is the problem in your view that 
there is a, a denial, and it's you know, well, there's an insistence upon denying clause as a condition of being good within that quotation. Correct. Right. So, a book that you and I have discussed before that we might get more into in the future is Rene Girard's uh, The Violent and the Sacred. And in that book, he posits that human beings naturally have a tendency to uh, compounding violence, especially when they're in societies. So he's not talking about hunter-gatherer tribes that interact sporadically with other hunter-gatherer tribes. He's talking very specifically once we start civilization and we're constantly around people. He believes that violence is mimetic and that it kind of you know, keeps compounding the more and more you're around people. So he talks about how we end up needing to sacrifice usually either a person or an animal in order to act as a pressure release valve for that, for that kind of violence, you know? And what I'm basically saying is that that can lead to a problem in which you now have the person who's not able to sort of enact their will, who isn't able to fully understand what their clause can do. And it doesn't, the, the violence just keeps getting turned inside, 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 and you always end up having to find a scapegoat for it. You can't have a truly free society until you get out of that endless loop. Right. For people who don't know Rene Girard, he is, um, well, certainly in my view, he's one of the most interesting and articulate of the hot French philosophers who sort of uh, really started getting traction in America after the 60s. Um, I think he's much more interesting um, than people like Foucault uh, and certainly Derrida. Um, he taught at Stanford for many years. He hasn't been dead that long. Uh, Violence in the Sacred is published by Johns Hopkins University Press. And I, I don't know, since David's mentioned, I, I think that we might... Um, David, what do you reckon? I, I think we might end up um, talking about Gerard in, in future, so we're going to put him on our reading list. Um, people, Sounds good. People will certainly be rewarded. There is a lack of, um, I don't know, I, I found some of the um, the French thinkers, to, put, to give them that credit, um, well, I, I think they're often pretentious, um, and I don't think mm-hmm. Girard is. He he's very very sharp. He did not publish a great deal, not as prolific as people like Foucault or Derrida, uh, but I think he was really on top of something very major. It's a fairly big book, Violence in the Sacred, and there's a lot of meat there. Uh, it's a big bag to go back to the boxing thing, wouldn't you say, David? I mean, it's. Um, Oh, yeah. It's a lot to work with. I have it here, by the way. Shout out to my friend Jordan Harper, who sent me this book out of the blue, unasked for, uh, about six months ago. Um, It is very big, and he goes into a lot of different rabbit holes in it. He's very concerned with myth, uh, sort of a Campbellian in that sense, or or maybe for modern people, uh, somebody like Jordan Peterson, who's very concerned with with myths and and hero arcs and things like that. But he he's using myths, I think, in perhaps a more interesting way than either of those two thinkers. And uh, yeah, I'd love to get into him more um, 
in the future. Yeah, it'd be nice to sort of uh, give him, uh, you know, a bit more attention because I think he is someone, um, I, he, he never achieved that public intellectual status of some of the people we've been mentioning. But I, I think in terms of, of pure intellect and scope <clears throat> of um, of material, it's, it's very, very interesting. But, um, okay, to get back to, uh, to Spinoza, here is the second uh, quotation for you to feel. But you remember, Dave, you have to kind of balance these two. So, so don't them. forget yeah. the clause because gotcha. it's, it's really that schism to use uh, that term that we've been using. The mm-hmm. second quotation is, do not weep, do not wax indignant, understand well, you know, when you talk about the schism between these two quotes, um, I think that they're actually a perfect progression from one to the other. So the understanding of, of your own clause will necessarily lead to a kind of sovereign empathy, right? Not a top-down empathy, but a sovereign em- empathy. So when you, when you understand yourself, um, you stop weeping you stop lamenting all of all of the injustices of the world and you start to really genuinely understand. I think that maybe what you're getting at here is that the don't weep but rather understand quote is perhaps more pro-empathy, whereas the first one is less pro-empathy, um, where you're sort of, you know, not navel-gazing, but instead getting into a space where you have enough understanding of your fellow humans that you that you can begin to interact with them in a real way. But I guess that the way that that would be sort of sort of against empathy, <laughs> shout out to Paul Bloom, um, is that when you truly do understand, you know, your own clause, when you when you fully embody that 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 first quote, you more fully understand at the end of it. And understanding is not necessarily empathizing. Understanding doesn't mean that you now all of a sudden give people who are downtrodden or put upon or are otherwise, you know, victims of our current state. That doesn't mean that you all of a sudden take their word for everything or do exactly what they say um, or, or even worse, do what the state says that these people need. Like understanding is understanding the ugliness, even in the downtrodden. But how do I put this in a way that gets across what I'm trying to say? But in a way, I think that's that's better. I think that's more, I think it's better to look at people as full, three-dimensional, deep, conflicted, troublesome individuals, right? And I think that the way to get to that is through self-realization and self-actualization, I think the way to get to that is by bucking the the edicts that are handed down to you. I think the way to get to that is to really get into the mud and the dirt and truly understand people because you will stop weeping once you do that. You will no longer be overcome by what on some levels, if you're watching Animal Planet or something, the apparent chaotic, violent, brutal nature of life on earth and you'll get into something much more nuanced and i think better for society as a whole 
Okay. Okay. Well, listen, I'll, I'll certainly uh, buy all of that. Uh, well, here's my take on on where that second quote uh, takes us and how it connects to the first. Um, okay. I think you're absolutely right. It's certainly more, in general terms, more uh, pro-empathetic, if you like. But I think it gets to the point that um, we both were talking about last time, but you certainly introduced in terms of that in opposition to empathy, which sounds a little bit highfalutin. I mean, I think it's only not highfalutin because it's been so common. You know, since 2008, we can look at the uh, the linguistic analysis in the mainstream media and see this just skyrocketing of the media just, you know, becomes a media buzzword. But mm-hmm. as with all buzzwords, it's kind of, there's, a, there's an, an emptiness to it as a result. Whereas understand, and all, I think it's interesting to break that down. I mean, understand. I mean, it's kind of a humble position, isn't it? Literally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not being over someone and looking down on them. It's not a, a top-down thing at all. But understanding, kindness, those were the words that we were using uh, last episode. And to me, those are words that, that everyone does understand, as in comprehend, and that real empathy starts when we understand someone else. Otherwise, we're just kind of imposing our clawless good feeling upon them, uh, which may not be helpful at all. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's mm-hmm. also a nice thing of understanding is, I think, an inherent good it doesn't need to be delivered more fully upon. It can, but in and of itself, it has value. And it's the, mm. it's the predicate basis for more execution of real help. Um, but I think to tie into a word that, that you use, which um, for listeners, David uses the word sovereign in a way that I think is really interesting because sovereign to me um, – is often associated with, you know, sovereign nations. Uh, I mean, it, it, it comes from, you know, the, a sovereign as in, as in a monarch. Uh, David uses it very almost exclusively in personal terms as in, as in an individual sovereignty. And I think it relates to the Emersonian idea of self-reliance. And if we either individually or collectively um, – seem to be a little bit hard line about the issue of self-responsibility. Uh, well, there's a good reason because we're both, you know, really trying to to live that in our lives. And it, it's not mm-hmm. easy. It's difficult. It's really, really difficult. And there's no way to put it any other way. But I, I think that what, what I like about that second quote and how it comes together is I really saw that in terms of like your neighborhood, you know, people mm-hmm. around you, you go for a walk, you know, to get some beers and, and the possums on your porch, or you go to your buds and, and in the garage and are beating on the bag. Those people, I just don't, I don't know. I don't see them. They understand the word empathy, but I don't think that that's like the way they're thinking of things. I think they're thinking of kindness, understanding, right responsibility so and frankly physical real help 
you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, there are some words that I want to break down, actually, because I love the way that you broke down understand like that. So the idea of being under an idea, but standing tall in the idea really resonates with me. Understanding is great. Sovereign comes from, you know, uh, sort of to be above, like above and also be a ruler. So it is typically associated with monarchs. But I think that we kind of should be the monarchs of our own being, of our own minds, and that kind of thing. And then you use the word responsibility. And I think you might have just cracked it with responsibility because Donna Haraway, one of my favorite philosophers, um, uses, she never writes responsibility as one word. She uses it as response ability. Right, yes. So the ability to respond to things. That's nice, so having yeah. So having responsibility for your fellow man is your ability to respond to their needs in a way that helps them without sort of crippling yourself and thus taking away your ability, your sovereign ability, to respond in the first place. So maybe understanding from Spinoza is great, but maybe instead of empathy, maybe responsibility is a better word. Well, I really love that idea of, of, of the response aspect. I mean, that makes me think of call and response as an oratory and musical technique. But uh, I happen to uh, be watching uh, the remade version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers last night. And I, I love the original mm-hmm. so much. I'd forgotten how good the one with uh, Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams and Leonard Nimoy in a yep. great yep. role mm-hmm. as the evil cult pop psychologist. But there's a moment before we really know if we don't already know what's going on. But Brooke Adams is freaking out. And uh, Donald Sutherland, you know, gets her to talk to uh, Leonard Nimoy. And Leonard Nimoy is pumping out that pop psych, Northern California, San Francisco, cliched empathy. But it's beautifully, beautifully crafted. And he's just so good at it so it's not over the top but it's it's right out of you know it, it could be out of a, a cartoon you know it's just so mm-hmm. well done and Donald Sutherland goes you're not listening to her right and right it, I wonder if if what we're what kind of a, a way to unpack empathy is that in in really pure communications terms it is a one-way channel event in other words mm-hmm. it's a projection upon mm-hmm. it's in mm-hmm. Freudian terms cathecting and then wanting to take credit for you know oh, I'm, I'm good as opposed to listening as opposed to a response in the responsibility of mm-hmm. really you know i mean i think that's often what the problem is is that uh we get i mean we can get a lot of good feeling from people. They're trying to do the right thing, but you think, no, this isn't, this isn't what I need. <laughs> You're not hearing me. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, haven't we all yeah. been in that at some point? I mean, it's like, 
I think that's really, so it, it, it's about the one way element of communication with empathy. And I think that's a good way to throw it back to people is if they are uh, believing that, you know, as, as Bloom's critics were that, you know, well, you can't be against empathy because that's like drowning puppies. Well, mm-hmm. show, prove, perform, demonstrate in the world that it really is a two-way thing, that you really are responding and not projecting or cathecting upon, you know? Yeah, because this was a point that I brought up, not to just completely rehash the last episode, but this was my major problem with top-down middle management empathy, was the idea that your responsibility to people is going to vary from person to person. There are 330 million people in the United States alone, and every single one of them in some way is slightly different from the other. They're going to want and need different things. And they're also, they're going to feel put upon in all these different ways. So the way to help them the best, I would say, is to, and this is very difficult, maybe logistically impossible, but is to listen to every person that you come across individually and maintain your ability to respond to that person, like to stay light on your feet, to be able to move, to duck and weave, to say no, to say this is what we can do. And then, you know, the idea of a governmental entity is to help in very baseline ways. And this is my more leftish side coming out, but it should be to make sure, again, that people have food, healthcare, a home. You know, there should not be homeless people on the streets when we have empty houses around. That just should not be a thing that happens. However, you know, what what do you do? What's what is your ability to respond when you, you know, give somebody a home and they destroy it and then they want another one? Right. So it's this kind of recognizing people, like having the respect for people to recognize their own sovereignty over themselves and to recognize that occasionally that sovereignty might manifest itself as a tyrant. And then, go ahead. Well, you know, I think underlying what you're saying in this, in this just last exchange, there's kind of what the Australians would say is knowing what day it is, as in having mm-hmm. some understanding, adult understanding and acceptance of basic human nature. You know, that that's kind of an implicit point here that you're making that look, you 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 can't empathy can't be predicated upon just a ridiculous Pollyanna idea of, of human nature. Because if that were true, people would by definition not need empathy, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's a thing that it's a thing that it it's 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 very existence undercuts its existence. It's an impossible paradox to get around. Empathy is not valuable it's outside of an interpersonal as a as a tool in the toolbox. It's not the whole toolbox. It's just a tool that you can occasionally use when your judgment sees fit in your interactions with your fellow human beings. But it is not a top-down this is the way that we're going to do things because well if empathy is having empathy for the most downtrodden and the most put upon all you're going to be doing is cycling through 
So you're going to move the people who are the most put upon up a level, and then there's going to be a new group of people that get moved down to the bottom class, and then you're going to cycle them up. And it's going to be this revolving door where nothing ever really happens. And there's a lot of collateral damage with that revolving door that is doing less help for for people at large than you might think it is. I'm a big fan of something that the the ethicist uh, Peter Singer said. And he's said a lot of things, some of which I agree with and some of which I don't. Me too. Not sure about your, okay. Yeah, so very, on board very, with that. I, that's well said. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm exactly on that page. Uh, yeah. 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 So Peter Singer suggested that much like religion, uh, when it comes to money, all you should be expected to quote unquote tithe to your quote unquote fellow man is 10%. The way that you would tithe 10% to a church, now you take that money and you put it into different causes and soup kitchens and things that you believe in that you can that you can help people with. And this goes from everybody, a person like me, who, you know, 10% of my income is not very impressive, all the way up to somebody like Jeff Bezos, who has billions and billions of dollars, because we have this idea of fairness, he should also be giving 10% to different causes that that help in an ideal world, right? And I thought that that was really great because it it takes away the governmental uh, uh, sort of like, if you were to point your finger and say, that is what I want to help, top-down governmental empathy would very gently take your arm and move your finger over somewhere else and say, no, that's what needs your help. Does that make sense? Well, it does. There, there is an interesting uh, and very complex issue here about, um, again, the individual personal level and jumping up mm-hmm. to the societal governmental level. But, but since you've introduced the the idea of money, I, I that makes me think of of um, an incident. Uh, that happened in Kuala Lumpur in, in Malaysia. Um, I was sitting with some friends who, uh, who are Muslim. Uh, Malaysia is a very, very uh, interesting mix of race, ethnicity, religion, and by and large, people get on very, very well. And they know a lot about different culture within their society. They're very respectful overall and, and very, and that respect comes from understanding to, to use that word again. And I think mm-hmm. respect is, is something that we want to keep hammering uh, because that's really important to this. But uh, we were sitting in this, we were undercover uh, at this uh, sort of restaurant, but we were outdoors, but undercover, and it was absolutely pouring rain. And Malaysian rain is, is you know, can be really, really intense. And uh, we were near the central market. And out of this blurred, uh, wet mush of uh, tropical weather comes a, a Buddhist monk. Uh, in a saffron robe, you know, he looks 75, 80. Uh, he honestly looked like a very fit 100, you know, but he was a, a, a fair mm-hmm. dinkum Buddhist monk. Um, and mm-hmm. one of uh, my Muslim friends got up, went out into the rain, was only out there a few seconds, got completely soaked, and gave the old man some alms, money. And there was no question that that was the right thing to do. And I, when I asked about it, he said, well, that is, he's a man of faith. 
And I thought that was interesting mm-hmm. that here, here's, you know, mm-hmm. people of faith, they're, they're fairly, you know, uh, they, they take Islam seriously. They're, they're uh, educated professional people, but they are people of, a, of faith. And uh, here was someone respecting someone else's point of view. Um, some people might think of, of Buddhism more as a philosophy than a religion, but in, in that context, it was seen very much as uh, another religion. Uh, but here's someone who depends on alms or, or charity. Um, he wasn't begging, but he, he was grateful for the money. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that got me thinking of uh, the word alms. And uh, it's related to, well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, it, it, it has a couple of connections. with The Greek word almost soul, uh, but also mm-hmm. the word Elimosinary, uh, which is a word we don't see very often, but it's uh, and it's not a. It, it always made me think of a kind of bird um, when I first yeah. saw that. But it means you know to to depend on charity. But there's an interesting other word connected with that, another sentiment, and I wonder what you think of this. Can you guess what the other word I'm about to say is? Charity connected to depending on I'm not sure hit me with it pity P- oh okay pity okay now to yep. me pity is a really I mean that that's like falling off into quicksand that word because I understand that emotion um I've I've had that feeling about people in situations I would hate to, to be the source of pity from other people, I think that would be just devastating. That would be to go back to our the Rilke poem, the archaic torso of Apollo that we ended on a couple of episodes back, which the, the, the final, you know, triumphant line, uh, you must change your life. You know, mm-hmm. it's phrased as an imperative and a challenge, but I think you and I both came around to the idea that this is really a very hopeful and inspiring one because you can, the implication is you can change your life. Mm-hmm. You're not the source of, you're not a subject of pity. And I wonder what you think about right. that. If we put pity into the mix with with empathy, mm-hmm. we're, we've got a lot of these words shaking around now. And I, I think that's really important because words, you know, they have a field around them. You know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. an electromagnetic field. Pity is part of, of the empathy field. How, how do you feel about that? Well, I feel that I'm also a person who feels a lot of pity for people when I'm online and I see videos of people who get into arguments and then somebody gets knocked out. Uh, let's say that this is a person who's been you know, saying abhorrent things and then somebody punches them in the face and all of the comments are... That's great. That's what he deserved. I feel a lot of pity for the person who got knocked out because let's face it, nobody wants to get knocked out and have it recorded and go viral online. It's sort of a pathetic thing to have happen to you. And I've always felt pity mostly for children. When I see children in distress, I feel a lot of a lot of pity. Um but translating pity to an adult to me has never really kind of taken hold. I'm not saying that it never happens necessarily, but I don't 
typically look at adults and feel pity unless something has happened to them. Okay. So I think that pity is definitely a part of the empathy umbrella. And it's something that can be weaponized, much like empathy can, in order to sort of tug on your heartstrings, which, by the way, it's great that your heartstrings are being tugged. It means you're a person. It means you're a human being. But I think that pity can often be used in service of things that are incorrect. I wanted to to go back to sort of an idea I know this is sort of moving away from your pity question, and we can definitely come back to it, but I want to say this before I lose it. The story that you told of your Muslim friends giving alms to the Buddhist monk moving through the rain, Mm -hmm. that also, by the way, is fantastic magic. And I want to make it very clear that even though we've had two episodes now where we've been talking about the problems of empathy, I want to make it clear that in a pouring rainstorm, going to give alms to somebody who is of a different religion of you is absolutely the best magic that you could possibly do. Because magic doesn't have time or interest in making sure that you are following a strict set of edicts, right? Don't you think that in this story that you told, combining that with what I mentioned earlier about people leaving the Christian church and then moving to another set of rules for what they should and shouldn't do. Um, There's something in the breaking of those edicts and the recognizing of this person in front of you and and your responsibility. Are you able to get up out of your chair and go through the rain to give this person money that is transcending the world of the religious and the strict into the realm of the magical? Because the Buddhist monk is by definition going to have <clears throat> some magic that the follower of Islam is not going to have or the follower of Christianity or the, or the you know the, the follower of any real like Hinduism whatever so I just wanted to throw out there that I do think being able to cross boundaries and get a little bit of the peanut butter in the chocolate and a little bit of the chocolate in the peanut butter is fantastic <laughs> magic and, and should be closer to what we're looking at as a proactive way to be in our world in 2020 than something blanketed like pity or empathy. These, these base kind of emotions that very conveniently come with a set of rules that you can just follow and you can absolve yourself of this bad feeling within you. This is a big thing for me of people who don't ever want to have to sit with feeling uncomfortable for a minute or two because feeling pity or you know being told to be empathetic is a sort of way of not having to sit with some very conflicting, very uncomfortable emotions and thoughts that you might have to work through in order to do the best thing. And I guess I'll stop there. Okay, well, there was, there was a lot going on there. I, I, I think it was interesting that, that when the word pity came up, you, your first reaction was, was to say, well, that's pathetic. And I think it's mm-hmm. worth reminding people that pathetic is connected with empathetic. You know, it's that same yep. root of, of pathos mm-hmm. within that, which is a very complex, I mean, that Greek root has within it an enormous amount of complexity and ambivalence. 
And for some of the people who you know said that we didn't talk about the distinction between sympathy and empathy, well, yes, we did, in fact, if you listen to the whole last podcast. But in very simple colloquial terms, sympathy is a much, much older idea and really has to do with likeness. It, it has to do with congruence. Comes, you know, we talk about sympathetic magic, uh, sympathies being alignment, a connection of alignment. Whereas empathy is a very, very new term, as we mentioned last time. And it has a much uh, stronger sense of not just identification and congruence or congruity, but taking on the pain and suffering as if that can be dissolved, as if it's not just going to be moved around. And oftentimes we find that really that is what happens. It just moves, you know, gets moved around. Like mm-hmm. like money mm-hmm. being transferred between different yep. accounts. But when you take up, sorry to interrupt you, uh, but if you take on the pain of others chronically, you never have to look at your own pain. Well, that I think is absolutely right. I, I, I think it's, you know, it, it you could look at it from, uh, the psychological point of view and say, look, what's going on there? Are you really doing that? Why would you do that? There's something I think very unhinged about that, honestly. Um, and I think we could really pressure empathy a bit further and say, rather than it be uh, this good thing, it, it maybe should really be questioned from a mental health point of view. Um, mm. Because to mm-hmm. go back to my psychotherapist friend, a lot of the people that he's seeing now would claim to be deeply empathetic and just have having overtaxed themselves, kind of yes. like you hitting the bag I know these without people. wrapping your hands, you know. They go, well, but yes. I, I've given so much. I'm now like a, a sponge and, oh, I'm, I'm filled with blood and broken glass because I've taken on, you know, it's like, well, that's a martyrdom complex and that's not... Beautifully said, beautifully said. You know, that's a real classic kind of neurosis that's very, very serious. Um, yes, but how much do, how much do you like that pain? Well, and and then the question is, why do you like it? My contention would be because feeling the pain of others and turning that up to eleven to where it's just like you know the treble's so high that it sounds like screeching brakes is keeping you from having to think about your own shit. <laughs> Well, now we're getting down. I mean, I hadn't actually thought no, of this down before. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, what we're this is emerging is that we're we're actually saying that extreme empathy looks a lot like masochism, um, doesn't it? Though, I mean, I, I mean, that sounds sort of obvious, but but if you do the math and do the work, you know, we we kind of had to get we didn't have that idea to start with, and I certainly hadn't thought of it in quite those uh, you know blunt uh, brutal terms, but I think that's absolutely right. Um, but listen, I want to get back to, uh, well, two things. First of all, I love, uh, another one of your terms, which cracks me up is, is the middle management. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that is such, I think that's a wonderful way to think about, um, a certain kind of person, a certain level of concern in life. Um, it, it reminds me of at one point I was, uh, working this late night janitor job, uh, with some really just lost soul cohorts. 
I mean, we were just, it was, it was very dubious. These mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. I thought, my God, you know, I'm just going to do this for a few weeks because I'm, I'm short of some money. It's a long time ago. And, uh, but these people, they may never not be doing that. But um, right. so we're in these giant buildings late at night. And because we're always moving around, we thought we could get away with anything. You know, they're never going to track down who's on shift. But there was this one company that had all of these middle management sort of team building slogans everywhere. And mm. we just started collecting them and then scribbling over them, rewriting them, you know, and we create our own slogans like, if you have to ask, you'll never know. And mm. there was this one guy named Mr. Koikel, who is a defining emblematic personality for your middle management soul you know mr even that name it's perfect, that name it's it's, it's it's it sounds like someone dropping their phone in the toilet it's perfect isn't it well there are all these signs that were saying are you a people person you know and we changed them to are you a coical person and so I think that that middle management idea is something that we all want to just completely flee entirely just just it's abhorrent to even to think of but it's also very funny and um so when you think of soul destroying stuff think of mr koikel but i want to get Mm -hmm. back to to i mean i love the 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 oscillation that you are engaged with in terms of the individual and sovereignty and personal magic. That's what my friend going out into the rain, that was an expression of personal magic rather mm-hmm. than institution. looking to an institution. Oh, I'm going to vote for this policy because we need better, you know, something for the poor or whatever. Mm-hmm. 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 So I was thinking, I mean, you know, the, the one of, you know, it's, it's a, such a powerful line in it's, it's, uh, the book of Matthew, you know, that, that, Christ line, for ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. And that's in response to the woman who has brought the the oil uh, to bless him, you know, on on before the crucifixion. And that got me, you know, if you flash back to the Old Testament, uh, this is going somewhere. Take a look at like Deuteronomy. This it comes up early. Charity, empathy, these kinds of things are all about forgiving debt, forgiving mm-hmm. loans. Oh, David, you don't have to pay that money back. We're good, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great gesture. That's a great gesture of personal magic if you could afford to do that at the individual level. But notice today when people talk about forgiving debt and wiping out loans. It's always a big expectation of the government, of big banks. Let somebody else do it. Don't you find mm-hmm. that that's an ex- exactly the example of the abdication of self-responsibility, the turning over to the Mr. Koikel's middle management and, you know, more even, you know, bigger wig leaders. Hey, you mm-hmm. do the empathy. You do it. Whereas mm-hmm. I just want the credit for it. Yes. And I think that there's a distinction here because I do think that we should be constantly holding our elected representatives' feet to the fire about certain things, about the government providing certain things, because we do live 
in the richest country in the world, and there's no reason why certain horrible things that continue to perpetuate continue to perpetuate. So I'm definitely not saying that the government shouldn't help people at all, and I don't think you're saying that either. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But, But... but, but again, we're moving away from this because because we're trying to figure out what do we do? What is our exit from this troublesome paradigm? How do we move forward from this? And a lot of people that I've seen personally online spend their whole lives yelling about elected officials or even even more pathetically to bring that word back, celebrities you know, not doing their part to absolve the world of these these problems. And what they're fundamentally missing is that the magic is not in, you know, going to the polls and after 40 years voting a strict party line to the point where you finally get, you know, this this bill that's passed where everybody has to be nice to each other or you go to jail. That's not it at all. Rather, it's when you have a neighbor who comes over and says, hey, uh, can I borrow your lawnmower? You let them borrow the lawnmower. Or more significantly, if you're walking down the street and somebody needs your help, using your faculties, you know, making sure that you don't get rolled or taken advantage of or whatever, you know, helping your your fellow humans in whatever small capacity you have in that moment that is not beholden to a certain set of rules, right? It reminds me of this idea. You'll often see sort of very conservative Republican type people say things like, well, I'm not going to give that person money because they're just going to spend it on beer. But if you're a human being who's moving through the world, maybe a beer is what that person really needs right now. And maybe you've actually done something good by buying that person a six pack in that moment. Maybe you've done more than somebody who never does that and just wants somebody from the top to come down and say, uh, you know, you know, these are now the rules and this is what will happen to these particular people. I, I might have lost some coherency there. I hope not, but No, I don't think you have. I I, I think that it, it it seems like we have uh, wandered back into a kind of cage, um, and and perhaps a cage with with many facets to it. That uh, we're we're in in cages. Well, many people are literally in cages, so we've we've got that problem uh, on yep. multiple levels, which is a great concern. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we we have to as individuals and as a society. Um, or as individuals, private individuals, and as members of a society, we have to take some responsibility for the atrocities that 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 go on yes. all the time. Uh, I mean, I've I've done um, teaching and and workshops and uh, at several different levels of prisons, and. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I honestly don't know what what to think about that because I'm horrified by by what I saw. Um, mm-hmm. But as uh, Richard Pryor, you know, said, you know, they were uh, he was with Gene Wilder shooting a movie at, at the Arizona State Prison. Some very funny lines there. So you know, everyone's black there, and there are no black people in Arizona. But um, right, 
Right. He, right. he, you know, he said, we went up there and I was like, oh yeah, you know, like everybody should be, you know, out in the street and, you know, it's just revolution. And, and he said after three days, he was, thank God we have prisons, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, we, <laughs> right, we don't right. know what, what to think about that. We don't know what to think about, you know, the, the people in, in detention uh, in border facilities. And it's not just America. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that there are many countries around the world where it's pretty, uh, pretty difficult. And I, 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 well, no, the, like bringing up the border facilities is so important because I used to live in El Paso. So in Tornillo, about 20 miles uh, east of El Paso is where they have that infamous uh, facility where they have children in cages separated from their mothers. Um, that to me is emblematic of a governmental top-down response to a problem. And you can see that that is more disgusting and more abhorrent than the quote-unquote problem, because I don't actually think that Mexicans coming into the United States or El El Salvadorians or whatever their particular nationality is, I don't actually think that them coming in is a quote unquote problem. But if you did think that that was a problem, well, the solution is clearly worse. So I have a friend, I had a friend, he very unfortunately passed away last year. Uh, It was one of the big sort of tragedies of, of my recent adult life because I loved this person so much. His name was Isaac. And he was a true desert mystic. He was real thin. He had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which will make your uh, uh, skin like crepe paper. Oh like yeah, very, yeah, very fragile. Right, right. Um, his his brother had it and had passed from it because his heart ended up, you know, just tearing apart. Um, so I would talk to Isaac on the phone every couple of days, and Isaac was this person who had all these, you know, artists tattooed on his arms he had he had Borges on his arm you know he had he he basically like one of his eye, he was blind in one eye he wore a face uh, a patch over over that eye and he was one of the most beautiful souls that I've ever known and he was he he he's dead now so you know I I feel like this is fine to say like he was basically like a tarot mystic guru for many of the cartels on the Arizona border so he would kind of talk to some of these people and give them tarot readings and and astrology readings. He was very much into uh, astrology and all the different ways that it affected people. And he was very smart, very, very tuned into that kind of thing. So, you know, you could look at that and say, you know, well, maybe that's, there might be some ethical issues with that. But what Isaac spent most of his time doing was trying to get, um, the people of color in his neighborhood, he was he was focused on getting them famous. You know, he would be a hype man for these people in every way that he possibly could. And he spent all of his free time leaving water in the desert for, you know, south of the border immigrants who were crossing the border illegally. So he would leave water for them. You've seen videos of these you know, disgusting pigs uh, kicking over the water in the desert and kind of laughing about it, you know, because that's literally their job as the border patrol is to do that kind of thing. Um, Isaac would go out and leave water for these people. So what a great example as we sort of maybe wind down this sort of discussion about empathy of a person who really understood his responsibility in any given situation, right? And a person who was able to analyze what was going on and take real direct action within his own life in order to facilitate 
the flourishing of different individuals. I miss him very much, RIP, but I, I, I feel like he is the kind of person who I would look to rather than many of our politicians in power right now who, and many of the corporations and many of the celebrities and rich people who, who sort of walk this, you know, party line about what you're supposed to do to be empathetic as a person who was to use a colloquialism about that life. He would actually do it. Okay. Well, I think that is a good place to wind up. And just to sort of, if I could summarize that or encapsulate that, just to make sure I understand, I, I think that we're going back, it's kind of a return to coda of where we started in terms of deconfusing levels, which are often confused. And and they're pretty mm-hmm. straightforward here, but there's there is a middle management section. But the levels are really individual empathy, individual behavior, individual sovereignty, individual magic, individual responsibility. And that also means responsibility for consequences, as opposed to empathy on a on a much on a very big canvas scale, which may not make any sense, which may be counterproductive, which may not be really uh, empathetic at all, and and always seems to leave us with a whole range of cages of different kinds. And, and we're all in those sort of cages trying to yep. to be good and to do the yep. right thing. I hate that expression, do the right thing. Uh, I didn't, mm-hmm. It's I, a great movie, though. I like the movie, but, yeah. but I, I, I kind of <laughs> it, – it, it's, again, that sort of – it seems like a puritanical moral scolding. And I don't know. I have a thing about the – well, a lot of people have a thing about the Puritans. The, the Puritans fetishized men with big noses and, and women with big ears. And I, I have a personal issue with anyone who follows those values. But, um, you know, I think we have some, I think we've wound up the the empathy topic, but there are some things to, to lead into for next time to alert people to. I think this idea of sacrifice, I think the idea of how individuals in a magical sense and how societies, whether that be, uh, a, a traditional tribal community or something much larger as what we're used to now in the, in the developed nations of how we deal with uh, the questions of the profane and the sacred, violence and empathy, so to speak, how those work mm-hmm. out. Um, and I think that we've we've signaled that we might be looking to um, discuss a little bit more directly of Rene Girard's idea. Um but here's a, you know, I, I think of this line a lot. I don't have it sort of on a piece of paper over my desk. I don't need to. But um, it's a line of T.S. Eliot's. And it's just a very simple truth, I think. The good man is the builder if he build what is good. And I think mm. that, you know, someone can say they're progressive. They can say they're empathetic. They can claim these labels. Well, you know, we'd all like to feel good about ourselves that way. That isn't always the truth, you know? Mm-hmm. And and part mm-hmm. of self-responsibility comes from that constant interrogation of our own selves, our own lives, our own actions, um, both in, in terms of intent and I think in terms of consequence and result. Yeah. Stop turning the lens outward and constantly 
criticizing other people and look within. Is it better to attend a protest about the children in cages or is it better to go out into a cold Arizona desert in the middle of the night to leave water for immigrants? Which one is truly, quote unquote, better or more productive, you know? And if you're not able to to make that kind of sacrifice, to expend that kind of of effort, isn't it better to focus on changing your life first rather than pointing the finger at wrongs and injustices in the world at large? Because that seems kind of like a way of, of circuiting your own issues. You know that term circuiting mm-hmm. from, you know, yeah. drug and rehab treatment. You know, it's a way of like, oh, I don't have to deal with my, you know, because I'm dealing with something else. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a, there's a real risk in that that is uh, very understandable, um, but is in the end uh, not good for anyone, you know? Yeah, the sacrifice has to come from inside before it can come from outside. You You can't stay waiting on, you know, a virgin's heart to be cut out on an altar. You have to look inside and see what needs calling first. And then you've got something. Right. And you, and you can't look to the puritanical scolding or the, the, the virtue signaling merit badge, either of those incentives mm-hmm. to, to, to drive your behavior. That, that's not magic. That's not self-responsibility. That's not finally building what is good, you know? No. No. Well, thanks everybody so much for listening. Please do hit us up with emails at thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. We've been getting some great emails from all over the world. This podcast is kind of blowing up, isn't it, Chris? It really is. And we, we, we actually might need to, to start off the next episode reviewing some of the, the correspondence we're getting. It's very, very thoughtful, and we really appreciate it. It's, uh, it, it there's some engaging ideas, and we've, we've kind of, you know, keeping notebooks of, of, of future episode ideas given the feedback. So, yeah, mm-hmm. thank you very much from around the world. Yep. And this is kind of what we want to do with the podcast. We've always envisioned this as not just Chris and I, you know, sort of talking about XYZ or God forbid, and I don't think we've done this yet, you know, just endlessly complaining about things. I think we talk about things in a very interesting and introspective way, but we want to create a community of people who can benefit from the things that we talk about, who can actually improve their lives in some way and I guess I just want to say before we sign off here that I I really do hope with these last two interviews that this came off as more of a self-help and less of a rant. Um, I, I feel like you would echo that, right? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, you know, we're talking about kind of always practical magic in the sense of, of practical techniques, whether we're talking about writing techniques or art or practical techniques in terms of of living and and the works in progress that our lives are. I mean, we certainly don't have anything worked out, you, know, you and I. I mean, but we're working on it, um, yep. and we're sharing some ideas. And I I have a thought about um, you know if, if we're going to uh, maybe hold on to that cage idea, which is such a simple but very powerful metaphor um, mm-hmm. to to get us started for next time of of uh, an exercise of mind and of language that does help break some cages of, of category um, 
that may be holding us back without us even knowing about it, you know? Hit me with it. Oh, no, I'll save it to next time. Oh, until next time. Yeah. Oh, okay, it's a teaser. Yeah. Okay, gotcha, yeah, yeah. gotcha. Well, until then, everybody, uh, thank you so much. We're both so grateful for your listenership, and we're so grateful for your emails. And please do uh, share these podcasts as far and wide as you can. Um, I'm a little swamped with some personal work right now, but here in the coming weeks, we're going to have a dedicated No Country feed. Uh, We have a cool logo, and we're going to have our site where we have all the supplemental material of things that we've talked about in the different podcasts. So big things are coming. But until then, Chris, uh, have a good evening. You too. Thanks again, everyone. See you next week.